Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. And I'm so pleased to have on this week, Dr. Matthew Meehan. Um, Matthew is the Director of Academic Programs for Washington, D.C., and Assistant Professor of Government for the Van Andel Graduate School of Government. Those are all Hillsdale College um, outposts and, and attachments. Um, he's been teaching and designing humanities curricula for 20 years and he's a graduate of the University of Dallas, um, which we will talk about as, as uh, we talk about um, following up on last week's discussion on sort of where the higher ed space is going and where there, there is a real um, elite education actually available. Um, I actually got some emails about University of Dallas. And uh, yes, we did indeed forget the University of Dallas in our conversation last uh, last week. And we'll, we'll amend that this week. Um, but uh, Dr. Matthew Meehan uh, is also the author um, of as well as like he, he's written a bunch of columns for the Wall Street Journal and for academic outlets, but he's also the author of two children's books that we're going to be talking about today, The Handsome Little Signet and Mr. Meehan's Mildly Amusing Mythical Animals, um, both illustrated best-selling books. Um, he's really trying to, to create sort of new classics in, in the genre of children's literature. So, Matthew, welcome to, welcome to High Noon. I'm so happy you're here. No, thanks, Inez. Thanks for having me. Um, well, I wanted to start out uh, asking you how you went from... Um, or at least concurrently, because you continue to do both things, but um, you are essentially a professor of the humanities, right? You help design, as you said um, to me just a moment ago, you help design curricula for all kinds of, of um, sort of high school level as well. So you are very much involved in in building sort of the, the education, the true liberal education that is supposed to be the grounding for, for a self-governing citizen. Um, so you're teaching all the way up to, to college students um, and graduate students, but you decided to take this detour and write two children's books. Why did you choose to do that? Um, it's kind of a funny story, but uh, I think you can sort of sum it up in a couple quick ways. One is I actually did a politics undergrad um, and cared a lot about sort of, you know, how to help serve the common good of the country and build up uh, our nation and Republic and all those sorts of things. I was very much uh, kind of, high-hearted about those things. I liked student government and politics. I was one of those insufferable people. Um, and then, uh, but in studying there, I was also getting, I was trying to do a double major in English. Uh, and uh, I started seeing the connections between the two of them and realized, oh, wait, uh, the last book of Aristotle's politics says that if you ignore the education of the next generation of your city, you lose your city in one generation. So that sort of pulled me up pretty strong. Um, and I was headed to DC, maybe going to go be a Hill rat staffer or something and, you know, sort of work my way up. And I balked at it and actually went into uh, liberal arts education um, here in the DC area. Um, basically on the, the grounds that like, actually, if you're going to have a healthy politics, you have to first have a healthy poetics, right? You have to have what Aristotle called the paideia. You got to have a sort of a, a kind of structural educational um, regime for the next generation to help them become the next generation of adult citizens. So that's, that's what got me interested in education. And then at the same time, I realized one of the big ways education happens is fundamentally through story, poetry, beauty, image, culture, and art. Um, and, uh, you know, after that, I started writing on the side um, creatively uh, and the first product was Mr. Meehan's Mildly Amusing Mythical Mammals. And then the second Handsome Signet. And there's work uh, in the works. There are about three more books uh, going to hopefully roll out over the next uh, three or four years. So, 
it's going to keep going. Um, I mean, so when you looked around at the existing children's literature um, space, what made you want to write these particular stories? So one story is about sort of refinding your identity um, and confusion in the world of uh, of a child, essentially a baby swan. Um, <laughs> and the other one I think is more, and I haven't, I haven't read the, the uh, one about all the animals. I assume there's all these different uh, creative kind of animals. There are beautiful illustrations in both of these books. You know, how, how you choose, how did you choose your first two themes? How are you going to choose? You say you're, you're going to write a few more. Um, do you have some ideas about the themes for those or? Yeah. <clears throat> uh, yeah. The, the, the first book, um, is definitely a, a kind of like announcement display speech, sort of like, Hey, I know what I'm doing. I, I have the tradition in my back pocket. You can trust me with your children. <laughs> you know, like, so it's a big, it's bigger than the handsome little signet. It's, it's got a huge glossary that introduces smarter kids who are more curious. That's like oh, more than third of the book is this very funny kind of humorous, glossary of words and ideas that introduce them to the Western tradition of uh, sort of, you know, Christian humanism, but more just sort of Judeo-Christian, Greco-Roman, like Western culture. Uh, like, here's all of this stuff. Um, but that one, the primary theme, the two guys, you can actually see them behind me, uh, the big yellow ball up there, and then this little fellow, the Dally. They're the letter B and letter D creatures. They go through this journey through the alphabet. And it's actually a story about dealing with sadness and loneliness and what are the means to overcome that. Um, that's the primary theme. And I saw that watching as a teacher, watching all of these young students with all the interwebs and FOMO and digital culture and online bullying and just the dispossession of your animal self by just clicking on the screen and being sort of out of connection with other people. Um, I saw sadness and depression and those kind of kind of inner struggles to be actually very important. So I wanted to make a book that not preachily, it's actually it doesn't really point the finger, you know, in a lesson anywhere. But it, it's it's basically gives you kits out your imagination to overcome those difficulties. In fact, the bad guy is the evil, the letter E creature. And he is this weeping ape. He just can't stop crying. And uh, he's, he's all, and he only says things in the darkest way possible. And he doesn't know how to control his speech in a way that manages negativity. Uh, you know, sort of like a, like a Hamlet, like he keeps soliloquizing in a way that's not helpful. Um, the, the reason why it's mythical mammals and a focus on what it is to be a mammal, which is kind of another sustained secondary theme was frankly, to be perfectly honest, that same thing with regard to what we have now is the trans movement. But uh, I think it was starting with a kind of like uh, disembodied disregard for your own enfleshed nature, right? That you are an enfleshed creature. You are a body and a mind. You're not just a mind online. Um, and so I wanted people to kind of get back in touch with their fuzzy, furry, huggy, happy selves Um because I think you you need that. Uh, kids need that, especially today, in a way that uh, you know Gen X, even millennials, just didn't have the same disembodiment um, and the same stresses. Yeah, and, and it's really true. I mean, if you look at um, if you look at surveys for how many friends people have, how much interaction they have. Um, in real life, it's just, it, it's really shocking, like a really shocking decline, even from the 90s. 
Um, I think I, I, I brought this up with, with uh, one of our other podcasts that I do with Emily Jashinsky, but um, we were talking about, I think in the nineties, the average man, um, not even woman, but the average man had something like 10 good close friends in 1990s. They were reporting. And now over, over half of people have one or fewer, like it, it's, it's very, it's like a very precipitous drop off of that online, um, not online rather, <laughs> like very real, um, tangible friendship. And, and so I think that theme is so necessary. Um, so I always have this argument with another one of our podcast guests, Ben Dominich, um, because I get extremely annoyed at it, what seems to be in our culture, it, just this allergy to the adult Right. And and by adult, I don't mean the things that would excite a 13 year old boy, which are, you know, explosions and breasts. Right. Um, but like there, there just seems to be this allergy to to being an adult. So one of the quintessential examples that I always um, get annoyed by was there was this tour of a ball pit, you know, like a ball pit for little kids um, that was for adults. So every 20 and 30 something in Washington, D.C. lost their mind about going into a ball pit. And, you know, we could go about with the, like the, the Disney adults who spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. They don't have children, but they go themselves to all the Disney parks over and over again, you know. Um, so I have this annoyance with the childishness. And, and Ben Ben Dominich always quotes um, C.S. Lewis back to me, right? When I became a man, I put away childish things, uh, including the fear of being uh, of, of childishness and being seen as as very, very serious adult. And I'm, I'm butchering the quote, but. Um, so where on that spectrum do you fall? I mean, why do you think our culture is sort of simultaneously childish? Because, and, and the reason I ask is because your books are, they have kind of a seriousness to them, right? Like there, there's, um, there are serious themes. It's not written in completely like sort of, um, dumb language, right? Like the language is very elevated for, for children. And, and, um, these books, I think your handsome little signet is like what, five to eight or something. So these are for young children, um, and yet there's sort of elevated sensibility to them um, and a way of introducing adult things to children where it seems to me like there's a theme now in American culture where it's more like adults that want to hold on to things that are exclusively childish for like way past the point where this should be, you know, there should be other things that are bringing you joy and bring your interest at a certain point. Yeah, the sort of infantilization. I, I think of, uh, first of all, I one of my first jobs was working at a discovery zone when I was in high school with the ball pit and the new guy. And I was the new guy for three months, had to clean the ball pit. So no adult in their right mind would want to dive into a ball pit uh, unless it was adults only. Uh, they're disgusting places. Uh, no offense to uh, anyone trying to make a living that way. Um, the, the, the image I think of, there's one that made the rounds online a few years ago of uh, chi- adult birthdaying where like the adult will like take a piece of cake and like eat it like a little toddler uh, and be in sort of like this grotesque ecstasy. Like they should be in a high chair. Uh, Yeah. That whole spirit needs to die the death. So I'm with you on that. And as with regard to my own kids books, I think Ben's half right. Like it's a, of course he is right. It's a paradox, right? That's, that's exactly, you know, the willingness to be able to play the fool I mean, in a certain sense, that's what I'm doing. Like, I'm a professor of government at a grad school and an academic administrator, you know, sort of like, and I do kids books, right? I think that's uh, a really good thing. C.S. Lewis was uh, a serious, you know, professor and like he did the Chronicles of Narnia, right? He would stoop to conquer. Uh, And I think that's a serious thing that you care about the next generation 
in such a way that you're not willing to uh, create an adults only professional persona, right? You have to be open to the next generation. It's like, I mean, that's Socrates who's talking to the young people, right? Like you've got to, you have to talk to the youths. Um, so I think that's one is just, it makes sense to do that if you actually care about your culture and your society that you have to, you know, do that. I'm a father. I mean, I've got a bunch of kids. And so uh, I really, you know, care about that. But the tone of my books, I think is in a certain sense, sort of fatherly. Um, I just, you know, sort of be who you are. I'm a dad you know, like, and a prof, you know, sort of like, so I, the tone of my books is always sort of asking the young person to take a step up, like come with me, just come up a little. And I think the, the general, uh, and I face these headwinds in trying to get these books sort of, you know, an agent and a publisher and do all this in the first place. They were very worried that, well, there's words in here that are not uh, age appropriate. If you're going to, you have to have an, a marketed target age, and then you can't have any words that are beyond this sort of clear set. Um, and I just kept pushing back to people saying like, well, that's not how Wind in the Willows is. Laura Ingalls Wilder doesn't do that. Uh, you know, like a, a ton of books that we know and love uh, that are great classics. Um, Hans Christian Andersen, Brothers Grimm, like they don't do that, right? Great works of children's literature uh, create a little bit of mystery. Ask them to ask an adult what a word means, right? Uh, that's why in the first book, I actually put a glossary in the back to kind of answer the critics. Like, fine, like you don't like the fact that there's some words kids don't understand. All of them are in the back in a glossary, you know, and I made that a whole literary thing uh, in, in the back. So, yeah, I totally agree that the the infantilization is a problem. And we've seen vocab uh, skills go down and down and down because the literature that's age appropriate is age level. It should be literature that's age appropriate is one level up, right? Because when else are you going to have the sort of motive force to learn more than when you have beautiful pictures, an engaging story, a lot of fun and wonder, that's precisely the time to engage someone in wanting to know a little bit more, right? As opposed to what? Like here is a brutal vocabulary list. Now memorize it, right? It's precisely in children's literature that you should sort of take it up a notch. Yeah, this is fun. It's just reminding me, uh, I, I like basically refused to learn how to type um, <laughs> when I was a kid. <laughs> and my dad bought me this fancy typing program that was like, to me, extremely boring, right? Um, and and he was forcing me to do it every day because I mean rightly so like it's a very important part of the um, of modern world and now I write <laughs> on a computer um, but I really didn't learn how to type until AOL Messenger uh, came around when I was in very young middle school because then I wanted to talk to my friends and I learned how to type really quickly and I, <laughs> I yes. feel like um, it's a similar sort of thing you want to grab on to when somebody's actually interested and invested and wants to you know figure out some other thing. Um, and to participate in some other piece of learning that you sneak in the hard work that you have to do to be able to, to get to that place. Right. Um, yeah, so the, that's, that's really brilliant. The delight um, and instruct, right. You got to do both. Delight yeah. and instruct. Um, but so, so you're, you're from Hillsdale. Um, we had this discussion with Paul Rossi, uh, last week about, um, about kind of where Hillsdale, what space Hillsdale occupies and this higher ed landscape and about um, elite universities. And I, I think there's very little doubt that Hillsdale um, has, if not the, in the 
top handful of educational um, sort of programs in in America. It's it's incredible um, the kind of programming that that Hillsdale does. I, I always feel very jealous um, when I didn't know Hillsdale existed when I went to um, when I went to my undergrad. But uh, it really is just like an incredible, and all the departments are even from like humanities and arts and things that are not related to sort of uh, the American founding that Hillsdale has a, a, a focus on. Um, so I'm a big fan of Hillsdale, but so what space do you think um, Hillsdale currently occupies and could occupy in the higher ed world? Because it seems like all of your competitors, right? Your Harvards and your Yales and even your MITs, they're, they're all um, doing two things. They're one, they're rushing to embrace a, a far left ideology. And obviously universities have been, conservatives have been complaining about universities being left for 70 years, right? Um, but there does seem to be something qualitatively different uh, with with the sort of advance of the new left and the woke left. Um, so one, they're rushing that on down that road as quickly as they can. And because of that, they're also giving up to some extent on, on meritocracy, right? Um, and we saw that with the, the data that came out um, on, on Harvard admissions um, and UNC admissions for uh, different racial groups, right, uh, in, in this, this current round of Supreme Court cases. So what is Hillsdale doing differently? And where do you hope that kind of movement can lead in the future? Because everyone can't go to Hillsdale, right? Yeah, no, that's true. Um, so Hillsdale's a teaching college. Um, it's not a mega research university. So in one sense, we have no desire to sort of take on all of the sort of mech suit additional gear to get huge and like a lot of these uh, elite universities have. But I think it's precisely that loss of a focus on a teaching mission um, and becoming more of a research university where, oh, the TAs will take care of the students so I can write my books and do high order um, academic pre high prestige things. Um, and, you know, and then on the STEM side and then start labs and do tons of research and get lots of government funds and, and sort of bulk up that th this entire sort of monster apparatus really kind of puts the student uh, second um, in a pretty serious way. But the promise of these places, right, is elite education for the next generation of leaders for the country, right, or in the world. Like, that is that is the promise. That's the prestige promise. You and Paul were kind of talking about that last week. The, the um, but, but the promise is uh, basically not the focus anymore. And you have to keep faith, right? That's number one, is do what you say you're going to do and, right, say what you're going to do and do it, right? They just follow through. So we're going to, I think we're going to stay that way, but that is what made those schools great. That's what made the Ivies important and serious is that they poured all of the riches of the past into the next generation. They just offered all the wealth of Egypt, like here, take it all and use it for the good. Right. And so in that sense, uh, I think Hillsdale is doing that work. Uh, we've been doing it right for a long time. Uh, and I think just by continuing to do that uh, more effectively, we are sort of the meek shall inherit the earth, if you will. Like we're just going to kind of, I think, inherit uh, the prestige of being an elite liberal arts college that trains leaders for the next generation, which is kind of what we're doing. So 
in one sense, it's kind of like, yeah, are we in competition with those schools? In one sense, no. Uh, but in another sense, yeah, we're going to eat their lunch because we're actually focused on training students in wisdom and particularly practical wisdom. How do you live well? Right? What is the art of living? Everyone talks about the liberal arts. Uh, and it was like, well, what does that mean? Is Are you a liberal? And like, well, I mean, uh, sort of. I mean, it means free person, but you might retranslate it. It comes from the Latin artes liberales. It's the arts of liberty. How do people be free? How do you actually govern free society together in conversation and community? Like, that's not the focus of those places anymore. And as a result, they're losing. In terms of the meritocracy issue, I mean, you know, the, the there is that, right, in terms of, uh, um, you know, the, the uh, uh, racial quotas and that kind of thing is definitely an issue. We don't take government money, so we don't play those kinds of games. Um, we just try to find people we think will really benefit from this education and will be upstanding uh, members of the, our academic community and then the, the American community afterward. Um, but I do think that um, we are seeing a change. COVID has sort of weaponized it and um, uh, sort of uh, sped up this process. But where a lot of people who uh, were sort of like, oh, my kid is definitely not going to one of these sort of branded uh, small liberal arts colleges like Hillsdale or UD, they're definitely going to go to one of these elite state or, um, you know, Ivy institutions. We're seeing a lot of those sorts of people changing their mind now and realizing, you know what? And this is, I think, the, the great weapon against meritocracy in a funny way is an actual excellent education, right, makes someone a much more prudent and excellent person. Right? It doesn't make it automatically. There's no guarantee. You still have to be a good person. But if you give people the kindling and they have the fire, they have a much bigger flame as, as a result of an education. So you're sort of like, who are the meritocrats? Well, it's those people who have the goods. Well, where do the goods come from? Well, they don't just come from genetics or how good you did on your SAT scores. Uh, they come from the fact that you've trained yourself in the right kinds of arts with the right kinds of knowledge. And you have the right kinds of truth right, to actually think well and work well and lead well. So I think in one sense, it's kind of like, yeah, the meritocratic impulse is give them the things that will allow them to merit excellence uh, and, and lead. And I think that's a process that unfolds slowly over time, but we're seeing it. So that's interesting. So there, there have always, at least in, you know, sort of living memory, there, there, there are sort of these two, um, not necessarily contradictory, but intention uh, goals of a modern university, right? One is uh, to be able to do all the things you just said, to, to train people in the arts of liberty. Um, and the other one is more related to the meritocracy succeeding after um, uh, succeeding professionally afterwards, right? And, and it seems like part of the reason that we, we do invest, not in Hillsdale, as you said, very, very, uh, uh, importantly, Hillsdale does not take any government money, which means they don't take federal loan money. Um, they've, they've, uh, Hillsdale has done a lot of work uh, fundraising so that they can offer their own um, scholarships and so on directly to students. That means they're not subject to uh, a lot of the terrible regulations. So um, kudos again to Hillsdale for doing that. But, um, you know, the, the, the sort of basis of the ask of all of these enormous funds 
that are now going towards universities, whether through grants or through this failing student loan program, right? Um, has been these two these two bases, right? We're, we will make our graduates will raise the GDP, and they will be better citizens, right? And it it seems like on both of those things, our modern university system is completely failing. So that's one. But but two, these two things, as you, you're kind of alluding to, are a little bit in tension with each other, right? Um, it may not be that the pure meritocratic model. Um, so it, it, I, I guess I'm, I'm trying to dig into the, because you're definitely pushing back on me on, on this meritocracy, right? And I'm by no means a like sort of SAT alone. I used to teach the SAT and I don't think you can really interact with that test and think that it come away thinking that it's like some kind of grand measure of, of ability. Um, but don't you think that there is some necessity of uh, and some some like sort of barriers, meritocratic barriers to get a, a, a class um, in that kind of, of especially in that kind of elite university, which I hope Hillsdale actually will be not a research university, but an elite one. Um, I mean, there, there are people who are just more capable of learning the things that you are talking about, although I'm sure there are themes for, for anyone. So no. how do you how do you reconcile those two things? Yeah, absolutely. So in one sense, I don't see the tension as strikingly as you do um, in, in this way. That right, if you are actually going to be a, a, a free person and discharge your duties and be a great citizen, right, you're going to need to be able to do that at the highest level of virtuosity. And and virtuosity is a fancy way of saying excellence. Just to be good at what you do, and you actually need people of a certain amount of talent to receive a serious liberal arts education and the more talented they are, right. The more they can do with it. So, I mean, we have, we don't share a lot of our information, but we have, a, it's a very elite school. Like Hillsdale's excellent. Uh, and we have some of the best and brightest. Uh, and, and frankly, the demands on us for admissions now are becoming far more intense over the last, you know, five to six years. It's been growing for decades, but um, uh, so I take your point well that, we actually want the best and brightest uh, in a certain sense, right? Um, obviously, that needs to be, I think, moderated by a concern for character just because you have horsepower, right? It's like I don't necessarily want to arm someone with the liberal arts if they're a miscreant goofball, right? Like I don't want to uh, help them. But 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 you mentioned something last week with with, with Rossi that, that I, I, I resonated with quite a bit. It's, you're sort of pushing back on him saying, hey, we need um, – we need a serious uh, set of intelligent and creative people to strike out away from these prestige universities and actually go get the serious education, right. To rebuild society, right. And actually turn away from these, as you put it, right. What do you said? Headlong uh, run into these ideologies, these woke ideologies or whatever they are uh, just false. I think it's a kind of easy way. They're just not true. Um, but, uh, and, you know, and I, and I think that is happening. Um, thank goodness. Um, I think things like, uh, Jeremy Tate's CLT, the classical learning test is creating a different set of standards for excellence that are actually more refined than the SAT and the ACT. Uh, that's going to be a very useful, uh, sort of tool in the toolkit for doing this. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I mean, I personally speaking, I mean, I was a national merit finalist from, you know, uh, a very, uh, it was a university town public school like you went to. Uh, and so it was very high flying. We sent like 
55 kids to Ivy League schools from a class of, you know, 400. Uh, very intense. A lot of professors, sons and daughters. Um, but I didn't want to go to Princeton at the time because, frankly, it was kind of like uh, nobody nobody that I think like is going. <laughs> and there were a lot of people applying. And I was like, I'm going to go to a, a prep school or, a, a you know, a liberal arts college that seems to be offering a course of study that seems more demanding. Uh, and that's what I did. Um, and so I think a lot of more people are doing that. Um, and, and they're not going into high prestige jobs though. Not yet. They're actually doing what I think is wise. And I'm patting myself on the back a little here, but a lot of these people are going into education and building up classical curriculum, building up these new charter schools, building up classical ed, you know, turning around some parish school, right? They're, they're doing low prestige, but high yield, very important things. That is to say, they're going all Gandalf the Grey, which you can't see as he pads about Middle Earth, uh, rather than Theoden King, right, rising to the to the top. But because, frankly, you don't have the strength, the institutional strength yet to do as much good as you'd like at the higher level. So I think if you want a next generation of elites, right, who are excellent and prudent in these ways, um, then I think you actually need to do what's being done uh, and actually just put more gas in the can to do that. More of these schools, more classical curriculum, more liberal arts education, more of the great books rigor. Um, we've got to, we've got to pour it on. And I think, you know, I, I, I said this to you beforehand and I say it a lot. I think places like Hillsdale and, and UD where I teach and where I went, they're the, the Oxford and Cambridge of the next American Renaissance. They're going to, continue to pour out the kind of excellence that builds up a great society. Yeah. There's nothing that warms my heart more than thinking about well-educated Hillsdale grads teaching in, in uh, the, the charter um, network that Hillsdale has, has started up the Barney school network, as that was called. Yeah, um, I'm, on, I'm on the board of advisors for the K-12. Uh, yeah. That that really warms my heart for all the reasons you you just said. I think it is the only way to to truly. I mean, um, it, it it's scary. I, I got into education policy, which um, I don't talk about as often uh, on this podcast. But I, I did ten years of education policy, yeah, um, and it, the reason that I got into that branch of policy wasn't actually. I didn't start out sort of a school choice advocate, right? I um I didn't come at it from the sort of Friedman esque. Uh, competitive impulse part of it. Now I, I a very strong advocate for school choice. Um, but I didn't come initially to education because of that. I, I, I was interested in education policy because to, you know, 80% of Americans under 80 can't pass the, the citizenship exam that my parents took to become citizens of this country. And it's not difficult, right? Like these questions are not, they're, they're very basic questions about American government. Um, and, and you have, 19% of Americans under 40 can, can pass that. Um, and that's, that's really scary for, for a, a self-governing society, allegedly. Um, so I think you're exactly right to, to say that that's the most necessary fuel for the, the potential renaissance is people who simply understand the West, understand what it is to be human, um, understand the government that they, and, and the society in which they live, um, understand what's good about it. Um, and, and have some love for it as well. Um, 
Yeah, and 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 don't get me wrong. I mean, we've got tons of Supreme Court clerks. <laughs> you know, Hillsdale's got its its leadership crew doing a lot of great work in D.C. Especially, I love it. Um, and this grad school, where you know, we've got chiefs of staff and legislative directors and people running committees. Like, we're doing we're doing plenty on the leadership side too, especially in Washington. But but uh, you had mentioned again. Forgive me for just you know, last week's conversation was so prescient. You, you were talking about at a certain point, uh, if you're going to concern yourself with a certain level of equality, someone has to say, I want the next generation to actually, of my own children, let's say, somehow do less well, <laughs> take a step down. I actually think that that's not exactly it. You have to maybe do it for yourself because I don't think you can, you can't in good conscience say, I want you, son, daughter, to have a less good life. You actually have to try to build that life up for your children and make them better and give them, you know, as many advantages as you can. It's your kind of duty to your child. But you might choose lower prestige but higher yield jobs that are good, right, and start your family at a lower level of prestige, right, and then work very hard to try to build up. There's a beautiful poem by Robert Frost. It's kind of a... Uh, it gets misread as this sort of libertarian uh, sort of peon, but but it kind of is in one sense. But called build soil, and it's about like you've got you've got a crop going, but you might just plow it under one year and just not reap its benefits for yourself, so that the soil gets all the nutrients and becomes stronger and better to grow even greater crops. I think there's a certain prudence in a certain number of serious people going into. Uh, these educational fields, which are, let's face it, they're far lower prestige. They're much less money, right? But they might just be the most effective thing uh, for um, this culture and this country. Uh, so, I, you know, I think it's kind of both. You want both, but but I think very often the meritocratic school forgets one. You want high-flying masters of the universe, but you also want some of those extremely talented people to humbly pour themselves into these other institutions and build soil. Yeah, I, th I think that's that's really well said. And I, I want to recall something you said maybe a few minutes ago um, and, and come back to it because it, it really struck me. You said that that Hillsdale is selecting its, its class also on character. Um, there's no attention to character in part because, uh, you know, post postmodern ideas. I mean, what, what is character? What is the good? <laughs> what is, what is moral? So on these questions have very unfashionable answers uh, in the Academy today. Um, but it, it strikes me that that's, that is exactly what was missing. And I, I think it was very, very difficult um, in the, the sort of elite high school that I, I went to public school, but very elite high school. There's no attention to character and no um, reward for virtue at all and and absent that the meritocracy turns into not only of course all of the attendant horrors that one can imagine in terms of people graduating from that kind of system and then wielding power um that's kind of the obvious conclusion of this but but i also thought it made people very unhappy because if you don't achieve within the meritocracy uh to the level that you hoped you do badly on a test, you don't get into your first ranked school. Um, the kids in that system cannot deal. They have no other source of self-worth at all. 
Yeah, I, I've I've written on um, on this in a variety of uh, in a variety of ways. Uh, I did a piece for uh, the Washington Examiner a few years ago about how poetry can actually help you deal with tragedy and difficulty in your life. Uh, and I think the way we teach the humanities today is as bad as the worst, like stone age disaster. Like we, we teach them so poorly now and we have all this technological STEM sophistication, right? So we've got microphones that work and, you know, fiber optic cables and, you know, Starlink and whatever. We can do all these amazing things technically, but in the humanities, I really, when I hear what people are doing in a lot of schools with their, their English and their history courses, it's like seeing a bunch of like picked with, you know, blue face paint, you know, sort of, you know, chanting on the shores with, you know, sticks and slings, right? It's that stone age barbaric. Um, But what, was the case for so long was that you were teaching them how to write, speak, and give them knowledge of the past, right? And a kind of sense of a a narrative, if you will. But the whole, that was in a certain sense, the prima facie thing you were doing. And the secondary and more important thing that was sort of through those things you were actually trying to achieve was the formation of character, right? In formation of character, Right. You have to form your own character with your deeds. You have to choose well again and again to be good. Right. The you no know, book reading is going to make you a good person. But like I said before, it's kindling. Like it's actually the, the things that's what tragedy is. Tragedy is right. The catharsis, the purification of the passions through fear and pity, meaning, oh, I can identify that that person has many goods, but I can also identify they've done something really terrible. And I never want to do that. Right. So you're learning the laws of human life. Right. And and if you don't understand as a teacher or as a school that you are actually trying to equip people with the rules of the road for how to live well. Right. And you forget that. It's just like, no, I just want them to become a good communicator. Well, why do you want them to become a good communicator? Right. (laughs) So they can communicate truth persuasively to other people and therefore work in community to achieve great goods. Well, what are those goods and why are we doing it? If you don't understand the ends, you're going to mess up the means and the means are getting more and more messed up because there's no end in mind, right? Or it's being replaced by bizarre weaponized ideological hatred that I think is maybe, maybe, you know, the Greek word telos, the end, right? The end in mind, the purpose I think a lot of these ideologies, if you actually get down to the nub of them, they're atelic or anti-telic. They're against an end. That's the purpose is to not allow any ends to be pointed out to other people, right? For radical freedom, right? For falsely understood. Do you, do you think that that's because, because you just said in the formation of character, right? There's this element of, of tragedy of you, you see people who, on, on one level, you understand and identify with doing things that are deeply wrong. And therefore, there are consequences, not just for other people, but for those people who are doing the bad actions as well, right? That Do you think part of the, or rather the underlying problem here is that we have an ideology that doesn't admit that consequences stem from natural order and human nature? Because as you were saying that, I was thinking, 
you know, but, but the way that we describe consequences today is like systemic racism, right? Like if something bad happens, it's because of this nebulous thing that doesn't require any individual person to take, um, to, to be that example. You know what I mean? You can't point to, to somebody doing a bad action. We want to, as, as Reagan Reagan quipped about once, or like we have to get away from the idea that, you know, the criminal, it's, it's society's at fault every time a criminal commits a crime, right? Um, but that idea writ large is sort of, it, it has been broadened out to consequence altogether. It's almost like the adult version of children thinking all of the consequences come from their parents, when in reality, if they're good parents, they're creating consequences to mimic the world so that kids can make a mistake and only have like a fake consequence until uh, and and learn not to make that mistake for real right. in the real life where the consequences are real. Yeah. No, I, I mean, yes. Part of like back to uh, which one, where is it over here? Me and mammals, the mammals. Uh, part of that is your mammalian nature. You have a body and that has finitude to it. And so it can only take so much of X or Y. And if you don't recognize the rules of the road of your limits, right, then you, you're going to hurt yourself. And that's, that was part of what I was getting at with the book was to reintroduce people to their human bodily nature. It's a rational nature too, but we, but people like to forget the body and just go, I can think of anything. Well, okay. But that doesn't answer the question, right? I can, I can think I'm flying, but if I don't have an airplane, I'm going to die. If I, right. Just leap off a cliff. Um, so the, the, I, I, I totally agree that that's, um, just a kind of an, just an enormous, uh, problem. I think you can extend it, uh, you can extend it outward. There's a rebellion against natures, right? That everyone always pushes to the exception and doesn't think about the rule. Um, and I, this gets to wider questions about how we educate even, I'd say the adult elite, even the conservatives. Uh, I, I mean, I'm pretty crazy on these things, so forgive me for a wild-eyed utterance that might not be fully intelligible at first blush, but uh, we don't actually teach the things that teach nature anymore uh, to elite educated people. Like, we don't do uh, Cicero's on duties, which is that's the text on natural law, right? Like we don't do that kind of work anymore. Um, and then, like you said, we don't teach tragedy um, in the way that it actually sort of focuses on the individual. You mentioned structural uh, evils, structural sin, structural racism. Uh, I'm always insistent, and I actually think it's a logical principle. Like, you can be very prickly about it. Okay, I'll I'll happily let you use that term, but you have to understand what you're using it to mean. It is a concatenation of a series of individual wrongdoings. That is to say, there's no evil, wrongdoing, injustice. Those things are done by people. Those are acts. So there's no structure. There's no like a building isn't doing something wrong to you, right? The architect might have done something wrong by building it ugly. And so it's hurting you in some sense. And that's that's about as close to structural sin or structural injustice as I can come as is when an architect makes a bad structure. But anything else really is you doing something wrong. So when someone says, oh, you're structurally racist, it's like, no, you're accusing everybody of being racist. So let's get down to brass tacks. 
and talk about an individual and what they've done wrong. And that's where they get into real trouble. That's harder. So it's much easier to just sort of castigate everyone and wave your hand and say it's the structure. But that's what, frankly, history and literature has always been traditionally designed to do, to show you individual actors doing individual deeds that have enormously important consequences. A lot of people say, oh, we should stop teaching monumental history about great men like George Washington or, you know, not even good men, great men like Napoleon or Alexander the Great. Right. Uh, Like we should we should we should stop doing that and talk about like, you know, I always joked I once I taught a history class and they uh, it was uh, a a sixth grade U.S. history class. And I prepped the lessons. It was handed to me and I didn't really like it, but I had to teach that book my first year. And I said, it's like it's as though all of the United States history was, you know, uh, completed in the back of a wagon by a 14 year old girl journaling. Right. It's like there was no understanding of like, well, no, this person did this and then we went to war or they won this battle and it saved everybody. Or, right, this person wrote a book and it turned everybody onto the evils of slavery. Right. Like, there's actually individual people doing individual things that have enormous societal effects. That has been totally obscured by the way we teach the humanities now. And people are even busily writing, I think, untrue books of literature and history that obscure that precise truth, which is foundational, fundamental. And not only is it true, it's the kind of truth that is helps people be free. That's the kind of liberal arts type works that we need to put before people. And there really is a kind of industry of obscurantism to avoid these things. Well, I think that's that's a, a really good place to, to start thinking about wrapping it up here because, uh, you know, that 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 training, that thing that is difficult, right, about learning to be free is, as you've pointed out throughout the, the last, you know, almost hour, it is it is something that we have to learn. It's not something that uh, comes easily to us. And, and so I, I don't think that there could be a better better start than um, than your books. Um, so if you want to you want to give the titles again and um, where people can purchase them, because I think that if you have some. Uh, your kids or grandkids or or um, children for whom you're buying Christmas gifts or Hanukkah gifts this this season. Um, I think that that Matt's books would be um, a, a really a really wonderful addition to any anybody's library for their children. So, well, that's thank you, Inez. It's very kind. Um, yeah, the first one is uh, Mr. Meehan's mildly amusing mythical mammals. Uh, you can get it basically anywhere. Uh, Amazon. Walmart, Barnes and Noble, IndieBound, uh, from the publisher, Tan, whoever. Uh, and then the second one is the handsome little signet, uh, which is, uh, the newest one. And that's this one, the Mian's mammals is more for grades three through seven or eight. Uh, and, uh, the handsome signet is for more for toddlers up through about third grade. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Matt Meehan for, for coming on high noon and spending this hour with us. No, it's a pleasure, Inez. Thanks. Thank you.